to the Construction Big Breakfast, where we give you a hearty serving of insider tips and business strategies to help fuel your day so you can thrive in the construction industry. Now, here's your host. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Ben Pritchard, and welcome to the Construction Big Breakfast. Today, we'll be diving into all things digital data and standards around that. Joining me for today's podcast is our special guest, Dan Rossiter, who is the sector lead for the built environment at BSI. Uh, welcome, Dan. It's great to have you on. Uh, can you give our listeners and viewers out there a quick introduction to yourself, please? Hi, Ben. Yeah, sure. Um, hi, everyone. Um, yeah, so as Ben said, I'm Dan um, and uh, basically trained as an architectural technologist by trade spent a number of years in the industry doing public sector work and I've now shifted into focusing originally around building information modeling or BIM and I've more now gone into kind of a, a dual wielding role where I do strategic stuff you know talking to government key stakeholder sort of things for British standards as well as sit on things like standards committees and participate in technical working groups with industry on various bits and pieces all around data information and that sort of stuff. Cool, thanks. Before we uh, get into it today, um, there's one important question that we ask all our guests, Dan, um, and that is, what did you have for breakfast? Or I guess today I can ask, big SD breakfast. Oh, damn, Ben. Um, this morning um, I had, um, it might seem childish in a way, I had a nice bowl of Cocoa Pops um and you know some some biscuits with my 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 tea so you know a fairly pretty light breakfast i tend to have anyway um so that was me how about yourself uh well yeah you've done better than i have i've had uh two cups of coffee um but that's partly strategic it is although this will probably go out in a few weeks so it isn't today uh but it's chinese new year um and we're having a, a team lunch to celebrate um chinese new year so making extra special uh, room for all the uh, dumplings later um right so um digital technology bin digital twins as we hear a lot of these days which i, I knew would make you smile <laughs> we'll get onto that controversy later um the, the standards that sort of sit around it so i've known you for a number of years and you've championed all along the importance of it uh how and why organizations should try and become digital first make better use of their data um all of this things that i try my best to uh, uh tell my clients about uh what is it i guess that first attracted you into um that side of the industry and um you know your time at bsi and bre before that has all been around championing those standards and things like that what, what attracted you to that part of the industry it's a good question. I think it's when I decided to come into the built environment, I think at the time I what I loved was, I think, building science. And it was I, I think the idea was almost understanding how stuff works is what I've always been interested in. And I think at the time, you know, looking at things like architecture, engineering, that sort of thing. And what I found really was that happy middle ground, which was architectural technology. Um, so I'm a member and a fellow of the Chartered Institute of Architectural Technologists, NGO, and 
what we champion is the technology of architecture. So actually, in my studies, it wasn't just about making buildings pretty. You know, we did things on interstitial condensation. I I, I could do U-value calculations. We did, um, you know, structural um, force loadings and stuff, you know, to a degree so that what we were doing um, was buildable and there was a sound kind of building science behind it. So then, you know, when I started in practice, you know, I was doing those sorts of things where I, I was quite chuffed. It never got built in the way, but I did detailing for a passive house high school at one point, so private school, and it went through PHPP and it passed from my initial goes of doing it because you're looking at the theory, applying the science, getting it done. And I think that's what drew me to to BRE in a way was that, you know, from, from the outside looking in, you know, they're basically in lab coats and hard hats, you know, they're building scientists, um, which I thought was was pretty chuffing cool, um, which kind of led me that way. And as it happened, they were looking for people to, who were focusing on all this BIM stuff. And at the time I was doing loads on 21st century school stuff. Um, I think in England, build, it's called building schools for the future or something like that, the, like the equivalent um, for your listeners. Um, and then the idea was that, you know, I was at the time then we were looking at a lot of way BIM should work in the office because it was going to become a requirement on some of the Welsh school things. So at that point I started to double dive in and it's all really it's about collaboration, it's about trying to express what you want and get it back sort of thing. and it all made an awful lot of sense. It wasn't really about the technology, it was about improving process and I think that that's why I latched on to and then got involved with writing the training and doing the certification at BRE, which actually meant it was really good for learning because I'd sit there and I'd teach it for a couple of days. I'd go off and then I'd actually audit a business and then I'd sit there and teach again. And then I could be in the classroom and someone would go, yeah, but no one does that in the real world. And I can be sat there and going, yeah, well, I was with this small civils company yesterday and that's exactly how they do it. Mm. And you know, they do it well, or they did this little tweak to make it work for them. And it meant that despite not doing it directly, I was exposed, you know, to 50 companies a year in showing the way they were doing it. And while also then talking to people who are then either struggling or trying to understand the fundamentals, um, while also doing standard stuff. So I think the pull has always been that, you know, digital seems to solve a lot of problems. And um, I'm sure you've seen uh, the stuff from Giri, the Get It Right initiative, and there's some really good data that comes out of them around errors in, in construction. And, you know, it comes down to things like poor communicated design information, um, poor communication between teams and these sorts of things. And I think this is what digital and data can solve. Um, I remember a project, say 10, 10, 15 years ago, where what they're trying to do is use 3D models to tweak the sizes of a building to have less plasterboard offcuts. Yeah. When, you know, and it, it's, it's that sort yeah, of thing. Is that the one up in the northeast? Um, there was definitely one up there. I remember it in a CE Awards um, reading. Uh, they were you know, the standard size of a room to actually match the standard size of products to reduce yeah. waste. You know, something daft, isn't it? That You know, you would think that there'd be some... Um, similarity in how you design something and what you're using. It's not as if, you know, car manufacturers are going to design something and they go, oh, you know, those components, that engine won't fit. What do we do? <laughs> no, exactly. And, you know, and we, we've we done things to brick dims for ages, you know, but we haven't thought about the other stuff in, in that sort of way. And I think 
digital technology kind of gets you there because you can you have access to data you didn't have before and my i can be flippant sometimes with some of this and the the example i give sometimes is that when you use digital tech you have access to stuff that isn't cost effective you can to do normally so you think of um national highways you previously known as highways england um in theory they could pay someone to stand on every gantry and every bridge in the uk and physically count cars you know that is possible it's just not cost effective once you bring in you know a camera that does number plate recognitions or something like that you've got you'll now have a cost effective access to that information which allows you to make better decisions and i think it's it's that mindset we need to push on to people is that the more useful stuff you have the better decisions that you can make about the work you're doing and it doesn't matter if you're doing architectural design if you're doing structural engineering if you are a, a project manager on a construction site you need good information to make good decisions yeah i mean that highways one is a great example of really better understanding what outcomes you're trying to achieve isn't it it's not you know having a guess about what the throughput of cars you're designing to it is actually well no i can accurately model what i'm looking for and design therefore you know, same with throughput of people in a uh station whether that's underground yeah. overground or whatever you know all these things and then you can start considering because the other similar sort of example is um the bank upgrade um where um initially it was criticized for spending uh, one and a half two million or something like that on travelators underground you know what a waste of time yeah. but they actually could model the the value created by getting people through in and out of the station quicker meant that it was actually sort of cost effective and these are the type of conversations that you can't have without understanding and collecting and using the data properly properly and i get you probably saw um you know in bre with uh your smart waste and all that those other stuff you probably came across good examples but also bad examples of people uh collecting data for the sake of collecting data to sort of tick boxes as well as actually using it for good to gather insights and knowledge um, and you've sort of touched on it a couple of times already, the, the whole sort of digital side of um, of construction. Um, there's more, more required in behavioural change than just technological um, adoption. Yeah, and it's it's difficult because what what's very easy to do is to go out there with a checkbook and buy the the current fad piece of software and you know to be fair to everyone i won't name anyone but it's very easy if you're a you know a design company or a consultancy and you've seen someone do some really kind of sexy exciting visuals in something and go well i want to spend four grand on a license for that um but immediately you start to think about well how does it actually fit into your business and when when i talk to companies about you know actual change and trying to become data-driven companies or to, to adopt kind of some form of digital transformation the first thing i want them to actually look at is swim lane diagrams to sit there and actually think right what is your core business can you map out the people you speak to and the key actions you take and then show me how that piece of software or that piece of tech will actually help in that swim lane process to remove something or make it more efficient um, and there's a presentation I did ages ago on the idea of how standards can do some of that. Um, so um, when when kind of structural engineers do uh, rebar 
design. Um, you could, they, they obviously produce rebar schedules and stuff um, as part of that. There is a British standard. Um, I will say it is BS8666 out of memory, but I'd have to check afterwards. Um, we all know it, that you're right, Dan. Don't play it, Dan. <laughs> I'm 80% I'm sure. Um, <laughs> what it is, is a standardised um, rebar schedule, basically. Um, and as part of that, there is CAD um, CAM machines that are actually designed to take that as an input. So instead of you having to create a, a lovely drawing that has your own bespoke schedule on there and then someone has to manually input everything into a machine to then spit it out, you've got the situation where the output of the design becomes the input for the fabrication. So that could potentially be eliminating a step if someone's having to manually type it in because now you can feed it into the machine. And then that company could sit there and go, well, hang on, if we're sending our schedules to, you know, bars limited to print them all out why don't we just buy the machine ourselves save ourselves on the overhead and now we've become a design and fabrication company mm-hmm. while actually you know not having to you know to pay someone else because we've got all the bits we just need the piece of kit to do it mm-hmm. and then actually you're then starting to diversify your company and you become more productive for the sake of following you know a, a british standard so I think that when you look at it from a process point where you go, right, what does my company do? How can this thing help us do what we do better? That's when you can bring in standards, tech, um, other organizations, wherever else, but from a, a process mindset. And yeah, yeah, I mean, that's so important, isn't it? Just that understanding of what your processes are, where sort of technology can help, can make it better, whether that is re- removing waste or um sort of removing steps whatever it is um it, it, i mean you, you sort of gave a good example of using standards well there i mean m- my uh, early days in industry uh were in a sort of heavy regulated uh client um so i saw standards everywhere um and very much um was told by all of the 40 plus year people in the organization that they were a waste of time <laughs> um, often um, and I'm sure you see a lot of that where people don't understand the true value of standards um, and how they don't have to be you know they're not gospel they're guides often they're an understanding you know they help you improve what you've got give an idea of what a group of ultimately industry people who have come together to try and map out best practice because it's not something that you know, you on your own have come up with um, there is always a group of industry people who come together for these um, and I think one of the great examples of how um, standards can you know when you understand it and help you out is the talk you gave at DCW um, the um, the Thunderbirds one. Oh yes. It was, a, it was just a, a really good example of just really simplifying how even sort of you know building this Blue Peter um tracy island you know with standards just help you so much just to understand apply and do it in a productive manner well well, thank you and um don't worry listeners i'm not going to tell you to to go buy some standards um but what what i will say or a tracy island kit or i mean i think that's all right i yeah i think in fact yeah go out and buy tracy island i think hashtag not sponsored uh yeah it's the so I, the fun bit is that I, as you know, I bloody love standards um, and it's it's more of, of what, what they try to achieve. And the interesting thing is that almost every standard bar 
well, like a very small amount. When I say small amount, things like the IET wiring regs and Eurocodes. Outside of that sort of sphere, standards are voluntary. And what I mean by that is that, you know, a client might cite them in their contract or, you know, you might decide as a business that's what you're going to follow, but there is no law or piece of legislation that's telling you that you've got to follow that standard. Um, and what they are are voluntary um, packets of convenience. And, you know, what they do is they allow for people to actually just interoperate better. And, you know, there are loads of, of cheeky examples of this. And a very quick one I can actually see in front of me right now is my my laptop, my mobile phone and my Nintendo Switch, which isn't in front of me right now because I'm focusing on, on our podcast. They all use a USB type C power adapter. You know, there's a British standard that cut that that covers that. No iPhone then. Well, no, but that's but you know, but that's the problem, isn't it? Is that you know, you sit there and there's a standardized power charge. And note that mm-hmm. you know, just because there's many of them, you can't. There's no reason why you can't have twelve standard ones because that's better than having four hundred spoke ones. Mm-hmm. You know, but I'm now in the situation that provided the voltage and the ampage, you know, and everything is all set clearly. Actually, I can use the same adapter in multiple devices. Um, you know, we would have seen in the news. Um, well, I say six months ago, but all time and data is a blur now about conversations about food standards with America and this idea of you know, chlorinated chicken versus yeah. our food safety standards. So actually, if you use the same standard in two countries, it allows you to more easily trade goods. If you as a construction company use the same standards and in this case, say ISO standards from that point of view, it's probably easier for you to actually bid to do work in other countries to collaborate with their project teams. You know, and we've got We've got standards on um, the font on CAD drawings and the size of the fonts in there. There's ones on the symbols you use on drawings. So you can tell if it's a door, if it's a window, or do windows open from the top or the bottom, sort of standard symbology stuff. There's things on 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 BIM, as we know. There's stuff on retrofit. There's stuff on um, sustainability and, and key performance indicators. There's smart city. There's document management. There's data protection. There's cybersecurity. You know, almost any topic you can think of there is standardized good practice relating to it and some of the industry heavyweights are the ones who sit on these committees to feed into it and the public also feed into them as well you know we don't just publish these things go there you go they go out for public consultation and you know i've sat in many a meeting which is like three days long going through the feedback from the public to decide what happens now the difficulty is is that one person will say that thing needs to needs to be twice as big and then the next comment will be no it needs to be half as big yeah so it's hard to get something that works for everyone and i think i did see um uh this week that there's a consultation just open for um is it guidance rather than a standard around digital twins um yes so what the subtlety i put in there is that there's different types of standards and guidance is a type of standard um some of your uh, listeners, if they are from the design side, might be familiar with BS 7000 Part 4, which is the guide for design management. So we have specifications, which is basically, you know, if you're going to follow it, do it as it says. There's code of practice, which is you should do it this way, and you've really got to tell someone if you tweak your way out of it. Then it goes down into guidance, which is kind of like, you know, this is this should be how it's done. So there are varying levels depending on what you're trying to talk about. And yeah, as very excitedly, we've got our digital twin concepts that, that have come out. 
anyway, as a great example there, it, it's sponsored by the Centre for Digital Built Britain. It had a lot of the, you know, the people who were involved in things like the Gemini principles and a lot of the information management framework and landscape work and stuff all feeding into that project uh, with uh, Miranda Sharp doing technical authoring for it, who, you know, in, in a previous point was head of the, the Commons work stream for the National Digital Win programme. So we're not talking about, you know, Joe Wicks from down the street or someone. We're talking about a proper people being involved in trying to create this and as you can see it's now up for public comment so mm -hmm. we've, it's now been developed into this is what we think you know general guidance is what is your reaction public so that then once you've reacted we can then look at it to then refine it and actually create what we tend to call in BSI consensus you know at what point have we agreed that is what good practice is. So we hoping off the back of this we'll have a general consensus on what a digital twin means so that we can get stop some of the nonsense that we often see on social media and the likes. Yes, and that's part of it um, because, you know, as you rightly say, you know, at the moment, you have, again, you have some organisations who will tell you that, you know, a, a drone flying through to do some photo telemetry is a digital twin. And you'll have other companies that say, no, it's, you know, it's IoT sensors built on a building management system. And, you know, those two aren't the same thing. Um, but if we can get consensus on what are the, the four fundamental concepts that underpin a digital twin, then actually we can turn around and be like, well, actually, if that, you know, if that fly through was updated once every hour or something, if it had a, an appropriate synchronization rate or something, then maybe, you know, but I, you know, I, I don't want to say what is and isn't now because I have strong views and I'll upset a lot of people. Um, I mean, but, that was the whole point of getting you on, Dan. Oh, well, in which case, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll let rip. But the, so one of the examples, and this is why it gets so difficult, is personally, I don't think you can have a design digital twin. So, and, and the simple one for me is that digital twins, in, is in theory, are meant to be a digital representation of something real with a some form of synchronization to it, which could be through sensors or whatever. But if you've designed a school, what are you twinning? Because it doesn't exist. It, it Physically, there is no school to twin. Mm -hmm. So, and at the same time then, when you do simulations where you might do, um, I know, pre-part L thermal simulations and stuff, people might say, well, there you are. Uh, there's a digital twin of the, the potential school. I'm like, well, no, you just run a simulation it's on a, a design. It's a well, model. Until, it, until it's real, it's a model. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, and, and, and even then, you know, even a handover, you say right well there's the real school and i've got the ass built i'm saying well well that's a digital twin in the same way as a broken clock tells the time when it's at the right time of day isn't it unless you can unless there's something that updates them and you have confidence in that relationship between them what you've really got is a coincidence that they both match yeah. at the point really i mean um, for me for me i mean so i'm with you you know it's a model until it's built and then it's only you know a digital twin in the way it's often spoken about if you're actually collecting data that you then use yes. to do something with otherwise you can call it what you like but it's pointless um until you've got some sort of loop of constant improvement or you know if you're improving what you have or what's coming next that for me that is a key outcome in making it worthwhile whatever you're going to call it 
Well, exactly. And I think I had a, I had a playful test somewhere, which was something like, if you, if you had a digital twin of, say, a building, if I go in and open up all the windows, if you can then tell I've opened up the windows in, in the digital twin, then you that's what you've got. Or vice versa, if I open the, the window in the digital twin, is there a little actuator that opens the window in the building? In which case mm -hmm. then, you know, there's a there's a there's a center actuator relationship. And then I can say, okay, cool, you've now got a digital replica of the building mm -hmm. that in in but uh, you know, it's but it's difficult. And I think this is where where standards help. You say it's you say it's difficult, but if we you know, if we look at F1, uh, you know, an F1 race will almost, you know, the amount of data they are constantly collecting so that they understand whether the front wing, rear wing needs adjusting, when the tyres uh, need changing, how much fuel do they use, what fuel mix, all this is being done live because of data being collected, putting into a digital model and a digital representation of the car, the climate, all of that, so that they know how to adjust performance for the race and the next race. So we're not trying to create something completely new. Um, just trying to understand how some of those principles apply to construction. I mean, but there are subtleties in there. So this is this is the edge of my knowledge now on on this topic. So to it's going to get wobbly. But as I understand, for things like tires in F1, as an example, why why I've been led to believe is that those aren't actual. They're not real sensors. They're something that's, that's called virtual sensors. Uh, where effectively it's almost like machine learning style. They they have evidence of, of what wear and tear should be, and then based on the performance and how long it spends, you know, in turns or or, or what speeds, it's estimating the wear and tear on the tire. It's not an actual assessment of the tire itself. And I think what's happening is they've had enough data collected that they can be fairly accurate with that. But I would turn around and say, well, that's actually not digital twinning at that point because what you've done is you've forecasted and it just means you have an accurate forecast um which you know which then it goes into very gray funny areas of if you haven't actually got a sense of measure in it can you really say it's a representation or are you just making assumptions because you know if i i could go online find the sunrise sunset times and i could make a digital twin of the sun in theory you know based on those without using any real sensors but if someone blew it up you know that that simulation would keep going in the same way that someone slashed that tire um you know say there was a controversial um result in formula one depending on you know, <laughs> you know someone might go and sabotage a tire you know the virtual sensor wouldn't pick that up no no you're right you know the the tires i think are one of the few things where um there's a lot of simulation you're right um compared to uh, the air and the fuel and stuff like that, which um, again, you know, this is me pushing my uh, knowledge, but that is a lot more, you're less modeling, more sensors and a, and a mix of both. But, you know, if you're really going to make the most use of the data you're collecting, there will always be a bit of a mix of both. You know, I think, you know, it's not just about putting a thousand sensors in, you need some sort of intelligence to model and simulate and that's where you, you know machine learning ai and things like that can also sort of come in and and overlay your know, human input into creating you know well understood outcomes and insights oh no definitely and i think it's i you know simulate simulations predictions and stuff will always have a place it's just in in, in my head and in 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 the kind of the weird diagram i've got of where things fit together a digital How do you collect the data yeah, I got a, you know, and it's, you know, 
a simulation might collect data into it, but it's not part of the digital, you know, a digital twin feeds mm -hmm. into simulation. It's not part of, if that makes sense. Um, but in theory, these sorts of standards like Flex 260 allows people to go in there and either say, no, Dan's right, you know, there should be no simulations in there. And then it informs that or people go, no, that's a load of rubbish. He's being too pedantic. You know, it's about a digital, you know, it's a, it's more digital rehearsal. And then actually, you know, it, the narrative could go that way. But the point is, it's not about my view. You know, and as a BSI employee, I have surprisingly little power over what goes into these things. Um, it's about the collective view of what's considered good now. And, you know, these things always get updated and changed. So we we evolve with good practice. And actually, mm -hmm. if thinking changes, the standards change to reflect that thinking. Mm. Yeah, two things that um, we've heard a lot over the years, Dan's right and Dan's pedantic. <laughs> um, I mean, on that, I mean, that is uh, pretty much half an hour. So if we, uh, I could carry on for another half an hour, but then I'll get told off. <laughs> um, the podcast is too long. Um, so uh, on that note, we will um, call it a day. We'll wrap up the conversation. Uh, Dan, it's been a pleasure as always to uh, to catch up. Um, if anybody wants to um, get to better know what standards are available for the built environment, how to map their journey, I guess, to uh, becoming digital first uh, is the best route to look at the website, get in touch with you personally. How, how would someone um, go about that? Um, that's a very good question. So we have a, a built environment page on the BSI website. I won't try and hedge spelling out the URL now. I'll give it to you maybe to stick in the description for the podcast. I was about to say it'll be in the description for the podcast. That's fine. So I will I will provide that. And then if anyone always wants to reach out, they're more than welcome to grab me on Twitter or LinkedIn. And both of them, it's drossiter87, um, which I'm sure we can chuck some links in for that as well. But you're more than welcome to reach out. I always answer questions when they're sent through. Um, and if you're looking for help, I'm happy to provide any advice I can. No, and I, you know, if you're interested in just um, uh, following what's going on, Dan is a, a great person to follow on Twitter although he does occasionally uh, have questionable taste in TV, um, as this week has proven with uh, tweets about the mass Singer, but we won't, we'll definitely avoid that. Um, anyway, uh, thank you all for watching and listening us this week. I uh, hope you've enjoyed uh, today's episode. Uh, please remember to like, subscribe, share. Uh, if you'd like to be a guest on a future uh, episode, please do get in touch with us. Otherwise, we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thank you very much. Want to learn more about how Invent can help your business maximize its bottom line? Head on over to www.invent.com and get in touch with our team today. Thanks for joining us this week on the Construction Big Breakfast. Make sure to visit our website, www.invent.com, where you can subscribe to the Construction Big Breakfast on all platforms so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in the show, we'd appreciate a positive rating. Or if you'd simply share it with a friend, that would help us out too. Be sure to tune in for our next episode.